We are in a teaching series called Kingdom Mandates from the Mount. And uh, we're looking at, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount and looking about the, the way of the Kingdom of God, according to Jesus, the red letters, and uh, really looking at that. The la- final words last week that we looked at was the idea of righteousness in Kingdom disciples exceeding that of the Pharisees. And uh, that was a bit of a tough challenge. Jesus' immediate audience would have really struggled to hear that and try to reconcile that. And, uh, but we, he also talked about fulfilling the law. Now, the moral law of God still stands, and Jesus is about to expand on that in just a moment. But we know that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament law. You know, we know the, you know, that his death on the cross and his, his resurrection and fulfilled the needs that the law actually called for. And, uh, but also the righteousness that was now on offer from God would always trump the righteousness that the Pharisees had to offer. One was self-generated. You did that out of your own strength. You did all the right things to try to come across right. Whereas we are made righteous not because of what we bring to the table, but because of what Jesus allows us to get access to. We are reconciled to the Father through the grace of God, God's wrath for our sin poured out on His Son. And uh, through that, we are reconciled to God. It's really amazing. And we get a righteousness that we can't attain ourselves. I love that. But that means we get a power to live righteously. And the way of, of living that we are able to do, which is spirit-generated, empowered by the Holy Spirit, actually causes our lifestyle to change. There should be personal change in our life because of our knowledge of Christ. And, uh, and we're going to start looking at that today. We've got some tough things to look at. And uh, so get your seatbelt on. This is going to get bumpy. Um, chapter 5, verse 21 is where we're going to start today. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or you fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Let's stop there for a minute. We'll come back to the, come to the next meaty bit in a sec. Jesus had an approach to teaching God's truth that was totally different to the way that the people had heard. His immediate audience was used to rabbis being able to speak. The, the rabbis were the sages. They were the ones who advised. They were the ones who taught about how to live the way. But Jesus came as a rabbi, but his tone with Scripture was not the standard rabbi tone. He opens his teaching here the way a rabbi does. It has been said. 
Rabbis tended to remain faithful to what had been said or how it had always been done. But there wasn't often a lot of depth to that. They had stopped speaking like the confident insider to the mind of God that the crowd was desperately looking for. That's what made Jesus different. He spoke with authority, not like the others. It was an insider knowledge. It was a knowledge of things inside and it was a freshness about it that, that no one else ever was able to bring to the table. And the thing that sets Jesus apart from the run-of-the-mill run rabbi was, you've heard it said, followed up with, this is what I say. This is what I say. This was freshly inspired stuff. The moment it escaped Jesus' lips, the audience knew it. No one dared to do that. It was somewhat familiar, but it also had a distinct twist in what Jesus is saying here, although it should never have been a twist in in the first place. It had been twisted and so what Jesus said simply unraveled what had already been in place. To illustrate this, Jesus starts with a really um, easy topic. You've heard it said that you should not murder. Now, if you go and interview a bunch of people on Commercial Street and if you go, let's talk about basic morality. Take religion out of the picture and just talk about basic morality. What's right and wrong? What do you imagine you would get if you did that? If you took a survey, you have 100 people and it was for Family Feud, survey of 100 people said, you know, you'd hopefully find that lying, cheating, stealing and killing would hopefully be on the list of things not to do, right? Most people have a sense that that's not what you do. To the ancient Hebrews, it was the same. Not murdering someone was pretty much a no-brainer. It was a capital crime and uh, it was one of the commandments, the Pharisees, the rabbis, they were all right in teaching this to the people. Don't kill other people. Um, Okay. (laughs) But as we unfold what Jesus is teaching here, we see a contrast between the righteousness that was taught by the Pharisees and the righteousness that the kingdom calls for. The way the Jews knew at the time focused a lot on external and final action. But it ignored the internal workings leading to that point. It ignored the spirit of the law and just focused on the letter. Pharisees treated sin as a weed in the garden that you mowed down. Now I've tried that. In Wangaratta we had an awful plague of capeweed. Those yellow flowers that pop up overnight. And you can mow that and then you get yellow flowers in 12 hours. You mow it again, yellow flowers. Mow it again, yellow flowers. It's like a sea of yellow every day. Gift that keeps on giving. Pharisees treated sin as a weed in the garden that you mow down. You cut off just what you see of it. Ignoring the fact that it will grow back and then you'll have to cut it off again. Jesus treated sin as a weed that needs to be pulled out by the roots. When I got down with my little shovel and pulled my cape weed out, it actually made the big difference. In this case, the root of murder is anger and hatred 
and poor intent. And interestingly, the law of Moses also commanded the people of Israel not to hold on to that either. It wasn't just don't kill each other, but regard each other well at the same time. It was a command from the Lord. Leviticus 19. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so, they will, so, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We've got some actual heart things here that's being addressed. The Pharisees really weren't offering a formula to work with that stuff. They dealt with the externals. But Jesus is saying here that the presence of the heart stuff would attract God-ordained judgment just as much as any outward action would require judgment in the world. Look at the first instance of, of murder in the Bible. This is a good indication of how God works with this. We know that Cain was getting angry with his brother and letting that get out of control, right? We know that, right? There was two offerings. One was received, one was not. Cain was getting all really antsy about it, right? And where does God step in? After the bloodshed or well before? Genesis 4 shows that God steps in with a warning. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It hasn't happened yet. But your heart is indicating that you're down that slippery slope. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So God was actually proactive with Cain. He stepped in just as he was in the place of decision about the way he would respond to his resentment and his anger. And Jesus is doing the same thing for us. If we are angry, if we're name-calling, if we're getting off on calling people fools and idiots, if we're feeling good about telling someone to go to hell, stop. It's a slippery slope from there. We're becoming murderous in our heart when we get to that state. A kingdom disciple understands that our righteousness has to start from within and that God sees the darkness that's going on inside. Even though we're likely to act appropriately externally, inside we'll be no better than the world around us. We may even be in danger of eternal judgment. And not only, if that's not even enough, Jesus also states that anger and bitterness affects our worship. For this reason, he instructs his followers to check their their mindset as they enter the temple to sacrifice, when you offer your gift. This was their context of worship. He says, not to come in front and centre of a holy and righteous God. Don't make the public show of giving your all if your heart is harbouring this sort of darkness. Instead, Jesus calls us to reconcile relationships and reconcile them with each other before we try to engage with God. See, the kingdom of God is a place where reconciliation takes place. Have you worked that out? 
The kingdom of God is a place of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are, we are reconciled to God, right? And we are allocated a ministry that offers and expresses the same thing. We, ours is a ministry of reconciliation. It is the ministry of our life. We have entered the kingdom through faith. We have become reconciled with God through Christ the King. Therefore, our kingdom demonstration must have those same elements to it. In practical terms, Jesus says, leave church before you try to worship and try to sort things out first with someone who has a problem with you. Unfinished business and the knowledge that somebody has something against you, in this case, according to Jesus, is your job to sort out. Jesus always eyeballs his disciples and says, you be on the front foot with sorting out the relationships. It says, you know, if, if, if someone has something against you, you phone them, you do the job, you do the sorting out. In Matthew 18, if, 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 you, if, 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 someone has sinned, if someone has sinned against you, if you're the victim here, you go and sort it out. Puts disciples constantly on the front foot to sort things out because reconciliation is a mark of the kingdom. Frankly, our worship won't get past this ceiling if we won't reconcile with others. It actually would be good practice to check our heart every Saturday night, make some phone calls, do some contact, rather than come to Sunday morning church, be in the less than your best state and then complain because church didn't do it for you. If we are angry, if we're bitter, if we're unreconciled in our heart, we actually don't bring anything of value to the worship arena. And it's our responsibility to get that right. Jesus' teaching is clear. Don't let any conflict get out of hand. Don't let conflict consume your heart. Get on the front foot wherever possible. Sort things out amongst yourselves. Don't let disagreements get in the way of our standing with each other or with God. Otherwise they linger. They infect us. Something dark starts kicking in. John's first epistle repeats this sentiment. If we claim the love of brother but we or love God, but we harbour hate and harmful intent in our hearts. Several times he repeats himself and he says that we are in darkness, we are liars, we remain in death and we're murderers. And at the very least, we are not a demonstration of the reconciled kingdom of God because we are not reconciled ourselves. It's really super important to get that right if we want to live Jesus' kingdom way. We're still buckled in. Let's look at the next bit. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one body part 
than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And on that day, as Jesus is speaking this message, most of the men would have sat back with a sigh of relief. I will just wait here. I'm not cheating on my wife. That's for the minority. I'll just let this one gloss over. I'll stare at the ceiling. I'm going to count cobwebs. And I'll wait for Jesus, Pastor Jesus to get to the more relevant topic to me. Which is all well and good. Wonderful plan. Until Jesus then starts talking about the way it starts. Like anger, this is a heart issue well before anything in a bedroom takes place. Jesus makes the root of adultery clear. And it is the lust that permeates our heart. One scholar wrote that the acts of shame are always preceded by fantasies of shame. And inflaming the imagination begins with the indiscipline of the eyes. So our imaginations run wild because our eyes are running wild. There is a rather unified view today in the professional sector that points to a major link between the sexual contact we allow into our minds and our conduct. In the most recent of surveys, it's, been, it's believed that the... The, the adult entertainment industry makes billions of dollars every year. It's the most active thing on the internet. And it's a roughly 60-40 split between male-female participation and, and viewership. It's not just some dirty old guy thing, in the, you know, not some guy, not just a man problem anymore. We actually have a wide-ranging issue going on here. It's doing damage big time in relationships and it is doing damage to the cognitive parts of our brains. We're in a sexually saturated time in life. And even in the church, we've to a degree allowed some things to get normalised. The church in general, I'm being general here. The Fifty Shades series. It, sh- it makes me shudder how many Christians have seen the, 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 that movie, the first one at least. There's a primal, no consequences celebration of it in TV series like Game of Thrones. We're exposed often and the call to be diligent and vigilant with this area has never been greater, church. Just the way media works and and multimedia, we can be saturated so much faster than ever before with this stuff. Jesus says in Matthew 15 that our minds and our hearts are a crazy cauldron where all sorts of fantasies and lusts can sprout and grow unhindered. Whether we're married or not, this teaching is a must read for all of us. And Jesus calls for drastic action here. Remember that the Pharisees held an external appearance of righteousness, didn't focus too much on internal things. But Jesus wants us to pursue a heart righteousness because it's there where God puts his righteousness into us. 
What we allow in needs to be filtered to ensure that righteousness leads to empowered righteous living. So to do that and avoid the eventual external shame of adultery, we are called to get the scalpel out and examine our hearts. Jesus says if our right eye, or good eye in some translations, or our hand, our good hand, causes us to sin, cut it off. Matthew 18 throws the foot in too. Put your foot in there and chop it all over. Anyway... Be maimed in body if you need to in order to enter the kingdom whole in your heart. Now, does that mean I have to get a hacksaw out? Do I have to get the debt hole on the old one in the back of the shed? Do I need to take this absolutely literally? Some church fathers did. Origen Adamantius felt so consumed with lust that he castrated himself for the work of the Lord before anaesthetic was a thing. That was the third century. If what Jesus is saying here is literal, then we're all on crutches, we're all blind, we're all on work cover or... or Disability pensions. We're going to be limping around. Jesus is giving a preventative prescription here. He's saying, make a choice. Don't turn your eye to such things. Don't pervert the person who just walked past you. Don't check them out any further. That breeds fantasies that don't belong. And that is a guy and a girl thing. Make a note of where the dodgy magazines are at your local service station. I was going to address fellas and say that, but it's a 60-40 split, remember? Take mental note. Go eyes straight for the counter so your eyes don't stray into those areas. Don't set foot in such places. If there's places where you can get lost in inappropriate fantasy, get out of there. Don't go near it. If it's a neighbour's home, if it's a, a place where things will be exposed to you that you should not see, don't set foot in there. Don't put our hand to such things. Take it off the keyboard, put away the remote. And make use of the reconciled community as a source of healthy accountability. Guard the righteousness that has been imputed to you. Pursue the purity of heart that Jesus has already described at the start of this teaching. One of my favourite theologians, John Stott, he wrote this, We should behave as if we had actually cut off our hands and our feet and have spiritually crippled ourselves so that we could not do the things or visit the places which we would previously cause us to sin. So we render ourselves incapable of going to that place. 
It's better to accept a bit of cultural amputation in this life than to risk final destruction in the next. Render yourself incapable of doing those things. It's a pretty cool way to think about it. Set yourself up so you can't do it. Not play with fire because it's just in your living room and you're ignoring it. Job speaks poetically about his moral commitments. Job 31. Read the whole chapter in your own time. We've only got the snippets here. This is the highlight reel. Verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. It goes on to verse 7. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led to my eye, by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, may crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbour's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, may other men sleep with her. For that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. This is a man holding himself to high account. Don't let our heart be tainted or tarnished. Because out of our heart comes our actions. Make a commitment that resonates with Job. A covenant with our eyes, a guarded heart and pure motives. Ask anybody how an unfair occurred and they'll tell you a much bigger story than you thought you'd hear. Because what was brewing inside was going on long before the act took place. Just about every pastor I know who was going down that path will talk about 12 months prior getting caught up in something they shouldn't have. At this time I'm going to call the band up. I'm ready to conclude, church. The next bit, I was about to look at Jesus' next point, divorce and remarriage, but no way would I even be able to do that justice in a few minutes. We will look at that in a few weeks' time. We've got um, Ian Brown next week with the Lord's Prayer. That's going to be amazing. And uh, Chris Spencer's got a great one on treasure in heaven, and after that I'll pick it up again. And we will examine some of the really tough things that Jesus talks about and how we relate that today. But today, let's just look at some really simple ones today. What we're seeing here, church, are some strong lessons from Jesus. This is red letter stuff. This isn't the Old Testament calling us to this account. This is Jesus calling us to a way of life. A highly moral one. A righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees because we receive righteousness and the Holy Spirit gives us power to live out a life that is better than what the Pharisees could even do because it changes us from the inside out and our heart is completely changed and it changes our outward behaviour as a result. Anyone who says, I'm not under law but under grace and then uses that as an excuse to live in the most lax way possible and try to call yourself a Christian in the process, I'm sorry. That's pretty delusional. (laughs) Jesus holds us to a high moral standard. The Pharisees lived in a way that the law of Moses was treated as the limit of obedience. They would go only as far as what the scripture said and nothing further. We'll just do, we'll just follow these things and we'll just sort of cover the bases, do the letter of the law stuff. 
They got all the outward things right and they counted that as a righteous lifestyle. And we call that letter of the law living. In times past, I've labelled that the sinful attitude of doing just enough. If we're looking for the edge to walk on and looking for the absolute limit of what obedience should be and going, I will be that obedient, I will do nothing more, I'll do nothing less, I'm going to be right here. If we're looking for that line all the time, you become legalistic real fast. You become rigid at worst and you become liberal at bad as well. it, It can mess with you. Instead of a limit, Jesus takes that same moral law and he makes it a springboard because the Holy Spirit lets us do it right. A Pharisee says, I find the line and I go no further. A kingdom citizen says, I'm just getting started. I can do this because the Spirit lets me do this with excellence. A Pharisee asks, how do I look right when I look in the mirror and to my audience? How do I get it just right on the outside? A kingdom citizen asks, how do I look to God? When he examines the deepest part of me, what is he going to find? Jesus answers that question, don't just get the behaviour right, but get the heart right as well. And we call this spirit of the law living. Hear the kingdom words of Jesus to us today. Don't walk happy in life just because you didn't kill someone. Even the heathen do that. What's the basic defence? I'm a basically good person. I don't kill nobody. I don't rob nobody. I do the basic right things. I should be right with God, right? Well, clearly not. What's not right? Kingdom people are better than that. Instead of just thinking about the final act, stop calling people fools and idiots. Don't deal poorly with people. Choose our words carefully, knowing that every word and every deed is one day going to be exposed and judged. Deal with anger and bitterness in our heart. Don't even try to worship in that state. And instead keep really short accounts with God and with people. This is why, you see, the kingdom of God is a reconciled environment. It is populated with reconciled people. It is announcing reconciliation with the Father. And it is demonstrating reconciliation with each other. That's the kingdom of God expression there. That's what we're called to. Before we sing again this morning, get it sorted. We'll pause. We've got time. Go and make a phone call. Cross the room and shake a hand. Not, oh God, I'm not going to be bitter anymore. Hang on, that's upwards, that's worship. Look horizontally first. What is not right with each other? Delayed obedience is still disobedience, church. And the worship team knows that they're going to hang around, they're going to play, they're going to allow some time for you to reflect and to respond and to act if need be. So that this next time of worship where we start singing, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders and when you call me out upon the waters and, and we've got these challenging lyrics, 
that go, I'm putting myself out there, God. That needs to have substance behind it. And if our relationships aren't sorted, that's meaningless. So let's reconcile. Take, we'll give you time. Otherwise, our offering of praise, our sacrifice of praise, our living sacrifice of worship, it'll be nothing more than karaoke in our own ears. And also, don't go along satisfied just because you did the right thing by your spouse. Kingdom people are better than that. The Holy Spirit resides in us. So make a covenant with our eyes. Let's guard our heart. Let's cut off any offensive thing. And let's be diligent in the area of sexual purity, both inside and out. Again, the kingdom of God is a place of purity and wholeness. Even if we need to cut off things within ourselves. It is populated with people called to be pure in heart. And these people will do what it takes to relentlessly pursue that. Some of us here may need to do real business with this area. Some new accountability and prayer groups may inform this morning. Some accountability software may need to be put on some computers. Some TV shows may need to be missed. Some patterns of living may need to be addressed and altered. Some figurative limbs and eyes may need to be cut off. You all heard the word figurative, right? Let's not take anything Jesus is saying here lightly. Instead, take action now before we sing another word. Let's bow in prayer, church.